Paul is uh, here following up with the Colossian church. We've been going through uh, the book of Colossians here at Sanctuary on Sunday mornings. And uh, this last week, we've kind of finally transitioned to um, a place where Paul is uh, writing to the Colossians in chapter 3. And he, he starts off reminding them of their current state. Because it's because who you are, it affects your behavior. When you when you are uh, given a certain level of authority or a certain level of power, it changes the way that you act. When you have a certain standing, it changes the the things that you would do or not do. And when you have access to more resources, when you are given this authority, you, you, it changes the way that, that you interact with those around you. And that's what Paul's getting at. He says uh, in the beginning of chapter 3, in verse 1, he says, if you've been raised with Christ, and, and he's in saying that you have, you know, those who actively trust in Jesus for salvation, if you've ra- been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above where Christ is. So if, if your current state is that you are a saint, that's not to say that you are perfect, but that God sees you as holy. He sees you as perfect because of the work of Christ on your behalf. Obviously, you know, uh, there's a lot of people who are Christians who don't really act very saintly in the sense that, uh, you know, we would think, we, we're short-tempered, we get angry when people uh, drive really slow in their cars or cut us off, and, you know, we're frustrated and we're honking our horn. There's a lot of us who don't really act very saintly, but, but the Scripture tells us that because of Christ's work on our behalf, we are seen before God as holy, as pure. And so what Paul now says to the Colossians is that if that's your position, if that's who you are, then you should act that way. You should seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And then he says in verse 2, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Above, seek the things that are above, not on the earth. And then he, he uh, reiterates his, his uh, um, command there by, by reminding them of their state. He says, you've died. And your life is hidden with Christ and God. You're dead. It's, it's done. You're not this old person, so you don't need to act in these old ways. And so he kind of reminds us of that again this morning as we come to verse 5. He, he, he uses uh, this idea of putting to death. As, as he tells us in, in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 3, he says, For you have died, you're already dead, and you've uh, your life is hidden with Christ and God. Now, your acts, the, the behavior, the things that are of that old self, that old person, must also die. <clears throat> so he starts off in verse 5, and he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly of you, or, or earthly in you. So what Paul's saying is, since you have this heavenly mindset, since you're, you're, you're supposed to seek these things that are supposed to come from your, this uh, heavenly uh, orientation of your will, your heart, then we should be uh, more than happy, more than eager to get rid of any behavior that doesn't reflect this heavenly mindset. You know, we talked about last week how the, the key uh, to having your behavior corrected 
is not just to, to do something different. It's to be changed and transformed. You got to get your mind right so your game is tight, right? That's the phrase we use, mind right, game tight. You got to get your mind right. It needs to be transformed and renewed by the gospel. And when it's done that, then you will operate out of who you are in Christ rather than someone just trying to be good. Anybody can fake it, they can pretend to be good, anybody can be good on the outside, but inwardly will still be selfish, will still be uh, self-centered and focused inward. But Jesus tells us that the way to have correct outward behavior is to change the inner man, the inner person, to have a heart change. And so he tells, Paul tells us this morning, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. When we're crucified to Christ, then that means that we're dead to sin and alive to Christ. And so, therefore, the earthly works or the old self that's, that's residing within us also must die. They shouldn't have a, a host body, a, a person who is willing to entertain their presence. Someone who is a new person should not entertain old things. And the word that he uses here uh, is put to death. And that's really what it is, because, you know, they kind of keep creeping up. If you try to ignore it, it kind of keeps creeping up on you. In, in, the, um, you know, in, in an old English sort of way to put it, the word that uh, early translators used was mortify, mortify the flesh. You know, and, I, and I, that just sounds so much more gnarly, you know, mortify the flesh. It just... It, in my mind, it's closer to like mutilate and like just destroy. And the actual lexical definition of it is it's to put to death, to deprive of power, to destroy the strength of. And I think that's a very uh, wonderful definition because it not only speaks to uh, the death of something, but it also speaks to a loss of power, uh, to deprive of power, and to destroy the strength of. There's, there's, it's completely uh, powerless over you, completely weak. These things have become completely weak. Now, we can't destroy these things on our own because we are sinful creatures, but because we are united with Christ, those who, who place their trust in Jesus alone for salvation— in his death and resurrection, when we die with him on the cross and when we are buried with him in baptism and we are raised with him, then he has not only defeated sin, but he calls us out of a life of sin because he has defeated sin and it's no more. And then he enables us to put sin to death. We can't do it on our own. It's only through his enabling, only through becoming this new man that we are able to put sin to death. He calls us to something that is impossible apart from him. You cannot obey this command apart from Jesus. You cannot be rid of these things that Paul lists in here apart from Christ. Paul similarly writes in Romans 8, he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice what he says there. If you try to do this with your flesh, you will die. But if you do it by the Spirit, by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the enabling, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, if you do it through the work of the Spirit, then, and you're able to put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He's very clear here. It's not possible to put to death 
what is earthly in you through the work of the flesh. No, uh, you know, and Paul's been writing to the Colossians here about these ascetic lifestyles that they've been told that they should take up in order to uh, graduate into these heavenly ranks. You know, they need to uh, put themselves in a position of bodily harm with extreme fasting. They need to, uh, you know, seek out the, the worship of angels. He gives this big list of things that they ought to do. But no ascetic lifestyle, none of these false teachings that Paul is combating will ever be sufficient. No, none of these practices are going to be strong enough. No self-help, no self-help book is going to be strong enough. Nothing will be able to uh, remove this lifestyle of sin, these difficulties from a person apart from Christ. No matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, it's just not going to happen. Now, Paul gives us a list of earthly things that we ought to put to death. And he deals with them, if you notice, uh, both outwardly and inwardly. This, he kind of gives us this, this vice list uh, that we ought to be done with. And I love how he, he deals with, with external and internal. The first one that he gives us here is sexual immorality. It, the, the, the word that he uses there, it's kind of a, a junk drawer word for uh, any type of sexual sin. It's just anything that is outside uh, the biblical prescriptions uh, of uh, sex, in, any sort of sexual sin, anything that's outside of the confines of uh, the biblical definition of sex being good, existing within the confines of marriage between a man and a woman, that's uh, what Paul says. If it's outside of that, it falls under this, sexual immorality. The second word that he uses there is impurity. This is referring more to like a, a type of immoral corruption. It, it also could be um, sexual in nature. You know, there's, that often kind of goes along with uh, the word impurity there. Uh, the third thing that he lists is passion, or as uh, we would you know, it's, sometimes it's good to be passionate about things, but this word here, it actually is the word lust, strong physical desires, and, you know, most particularly of a sexual nature. And then uh, the, the fourth one that he gives us is evil desires. This refers to our basic tendency toward sin, our basic tendency for all people to be bent towards doing what is selfish, what is, can, uh, what is driven by your own desires. James 1.14 looks at this. When we studied the book of James, we went kind of in-depth here on this, but he says, each person, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And that it uses the same word here for evil desire. Then this evil desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to, to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So these evil desires that we have, even though they seem like good desires, if they're not the desires that God has for our lives, if they're not submitted to Jesus, if we don't run them through the filter of Christ, then they could come under uh, the, the direction of being an evil desire. It's not bad to desire, but what is the motivation? What are you trying to, to get out of this? And so Paul tells us these things, you know, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, those things are things that we are earthly and that we ought to flee. And then he gives us 
One last one, covetousness. This is greed. A general sense, uh, a general sense within the, the life of a person uh, that they need more. What they have is not enough, and you're desiring more, you're chasing after more. Uh, one definition that I found on it uh, explained it as the uncontrolled desire. Uncontrolled. It's just complete, like you're not even able to, to put any parameters around it. It's just un, uh, unsatisfied all the time. Always need more, always need more, always need more. And on the basis of comparing yourself to others. So this uncontrolled desire for more. Uh, and he tells us that this is idolatry. That's what he tells us. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament speak of wealth and, and accumulation of things as being placed in competition as rivals to God, right? Because that's usually the way that covetousness works in the way that these things work when we're trying to chase down something. We're trying to get it because we think that if in, in our attempt to acquire something, whether it would be something that would be a uh, material goods, something you can go to the store and buy, or whether it would be um, a certain type of relationship um, uh, or uh, a certain type of emotion, uh, um, uh, anything like that. What we're often trying to tell ourselves is if only we have that, then we'll be good. Then we'll be satisfied. Then we'll have everything that we could need and want. And that stands as a rival to Christ, because Jesus is the only source of security. And this has been happening, you know, the Old Testament speaks of it, the New Testament speaks of it. In Psalm 52, verse 7, it says this, see the man who would not make God his refuge. Someone who, who knows that God is there, but they just refuse to make God their refuge, their protection. It's a God of convenience. Like, when I'm here, God's cool. But when I'm not here, I'm doing my own thing. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. If you try to build your house upon your finances, your own security, one day that security will flee from you, whether it's a relationship or whether it's money or whatever it is, one day that will go away and then your house that was built upon a shaky foundation will crumble. And the way to withstand it is to build your foundation upon Christ. That's why in Hebrews 13.5, the writer to the Hebrews tells them, keep your life free from the love of money. Keep your life free from it and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Your money will come, your money will go. You know, you'll go through seasons I mean, look at the stock market. You can see that very plainly. It's like one day something's sky high. The next day it's in the basement. It's tanking. It's insecure. But Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so we have to be careful here that we are not falling under this lifestyle of covetousness. Those who place their trust in Jesus are saying that he's enough that he is more than that we'll ever need, and that he can meet every desire that we have. Now, he goes on in verse 6 <clears throat> to say, 
on account of these, these earthly things that he's saying, the wrath of God is coming. Those people who live entertaining these earthly uh, descriptors of sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. I mean, basically it's just plain selfishness, having your own identity is what he's speaking to. It's idolatry. He says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, I want to speak to something here real quick because what needs to be clear is that usually in our day and age, when we think of God, we kind of think of God through the lens of, here are the things that I like about God, and here are the things that I don't like so much about God. And so I like that God is loving, but I don't like that, that God has wrath. So I'm going to put that away. You know, so God, I like loving God. Loving Jesus is awesome, but the judgment of God is not so much. But the wrath of God, the punishment of God, is bound up together. It's inseparable from God's justice, right? You can't have a God who is just without also having a God who is wrathful. You can't have a God who is loving without having a God who is just. They, they all exist at 100% together. And this is not just about God's wrath, but about God's justice as well. A God that is just must not fail to mete out punishment for sin. He would be unjust if he simply overlooked sin. If there was a problem, he wouldn't be very, un, he wouldn't be very just or loving if he just let it go. If somebody came, uh, you know, and assaulted my wife and I was like, oh, no worries, I'm fine with that. You just keep doing as much as you want. I wouldn't be a very loving husband if I wasn't wanting to, to see some sort of justice brought about. I'd be like, oh, I'm indifferent towards that. There's a demand for me to, uh, you know, I want to see something happen. I want to see something made right so my wife could be protected. But if I treated my wife and that uh, person who assaulted my wife, as we often treat God, that, you know, we like loving, we like to be loved. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm all loving about that. You can assault her all you want because I'm totally okay. I like, there's no punishment. There's no wrath or justice will ever come upon you for the things that you've done. That, you know, that doesn't sit very well with us. We want to see justice but we forget a lot of times that justice comes with punishment. It comes with a, a wrathfulness that is built into it. Because the way for justice to come about is for someone to meet and to, to have to pay for the penalty of what their offense is. Sin cannot go unpunished. It's a cause and effect behavior. There's, there's, there's consequences here. And because there is unrighteousness, there's a conse consequence. Right? If, you, uh, if you run a red light and the cop is right there, he's not going to be like, oh, just let it go. He's going to give you a ticket. That's just how it is. It's black and white. But the, when it's something like that, you know, we get all heated because we don't want to pay money or whatever. But, but if it's somebody else, we're like, oh, just let it go. But as soon as it's us, then it's like, you know, we're all upset about it. We're all angry. Now I've got to pay $400 for this thing, and he could have just let it go. There's no one in the intersection you know, make excuses. 
there's a consequence to our behavior. And what Paul says is that we all stand under God's wrath because we were these people. All people who uh, at one point have stood under God's wrath. We face God's judgment, his punishment. And, God, and Paul says God's wrath is on the way. It's imminent. It's coming. And so what he's telling them is seek refuge. You can face the consequences yourself. You can face that punishment, the wrath of God yourself, or you can seek shelter. You can seek salvation under Christ who has already faced God's wrath for you. I don't know about you, but I'm taking the one where I don't have to pay. It's a way better deal. It's way better. Christ has faced the wrath that was due to me because I was someone who was once, a, 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 you know, a list of these sexually immoral, impure, passion, evil desires, covetousness, all of those things at some point, in some way, you know, I was a committer of some of these things. I, I was participating in some sense of these things. And he's not done with the list. He's got another list. So if you think you escaped that one, he's got another one coming. I participated. You and I have all participated in something of this nature at one point or another. And he tells us, seek shelter. He's giving you the warning. On these, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And then he tells us in verse 7, in these two, uh, in these you two once walked when you were living in them, right? That's what he said. And the hardest part of this is remembering that that you were committing these sins at one time, or you are committing these sins at one time. You're, you're still doing it. You are still finding your own identity apart from Jesus. You're still doing your own thing. And the thing about, about coming to the end of yourself is that it requires a humbling, right? It requires for you to realize, I cannot save myself. If you've ever tried to save someone who's drowning, you know, or who, who has a hard time swimming, it's the best thing that you can do for them is, you know, swim out towards where they're at. Uh, someone, you know, I grew up in Orange County where I was on the water a lot. And, you know, lifeguards would swim out and there would be someone caught in a riptide. And they would, the, the lifeguard could see very clearly that that person was in trouble. They were getting sucked out to sea. And so they would throw on their fins and get their little buoy and swim out there. And this person, you know, and if this happens like on Memorial Day weekend, let's say there's like thousands of people on the beach. The last thing you want to do is be like the guy who was rescued, right? It's like, and so the lifeguards, they swim out there. They see this guy caught up and he's kind of out there and the, the lifeguard is paddling out. And the person who's stuck is always like, oh no, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, just go back in. You don't need to get me. I'm good. I'm good. I'm and they don't know that they're caught in this riptide. But the lifeguard can see. And the people on the beach can see. And so the lifeguard will go and he'll sit out there with his buoy and he'll just put it around him and just float and be like, okay, well, you let me know. I'm just going to stick right here. You let me know when you need help. And eventually it's like going under the water, you know, drinking all this salt water. And finally it's like, okay, help me. If you, you know, and so it takes a certain level of, of panic, a certain level of understanding and in humility to realize you can't save yourself. You're in trouble. And the only way is to have a lifeguard rescue you. And so the lifeguard comes in and scoops you up backwards, 
So you can't try to swim yourself or climb on top of them and drown them. You know, swims you back to shore. But it takes that humility. Would you rather have your life or would you rather be prideful? Would you rather enjoy eternity with God who loves you and paid the price for you so you didn't have to pay it? Or are you going to stick it out and shake your fist at God and be like, I'm good, I don't need you? That's what Paul's getting at here. You too once walked in these things when you were living in them. And then in verse 8, he goes on, <clears throat> he, he emphasizes this importance of dealing with sin again. In verse 8, he gives us command, and then he lists five things. Here he says, but now you must put them all away. You must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So Paul emphasizes you know, the command, put these things away. And here's the list of things that you need to work on. And when he says you must put them all away, he, this, this word that he uses refers to uh, the, the taking off of clothes. The New Testament kind of uses that as an analogy a lot of times, the imagery of changing clothes to, to demonstrate the transition from being someone who is wearing old garments to putting on new garments. You're taking off something that is old and ratty, that has holes, that's filthy, to putting on something new. And so Paul, he says that you need to, to take these things off. You must put them away. And he puts his laser-like focus on uh, unrighteous speech and the attitudes that it's rooted in. He, he starts off with, with these attitudes. <coughs> anger, wrath, malice. Anger, what he's speaking to here, uh, I'll give you the, the lexical defin- definitions for these three. The anger, an abiding I love that, an abiding, settled, and habitual anger that includes in its scope the purpose of revenge. An abiding, settled, and habitual anger that includes in its scope the purpose of revenge. The second thing that he says, the second attitude is wrath. Here, and this is different than, uh, it's a different word used than the wrath of God that is talking about up a little bit earlier. This is uh, malignity, ill will, desire to injure, wickedness, depravity. This is just like a straight up bad attitude about like, I'm going to injure you. I'm going to do whatever it takes to maim you. And then the last one, uh, oh, whoops, I got those, I got those uh, mixed up. That was malice. Wrath, sorry. <laughs> I read them out of order. Wrath is the boiling agitation of the feelings, a sudden violent anger. That's still a different wrath than uh, the wrath that's speaking of the wrath of God. But um, the, uh, the boiling agitation of the feelings, a sudden violent anger. So Paul says that these things, these attitudes, anger, wrath, malice, those things lead to corrupt speech, unrighteous speech. And then he goes on and says that you should put off slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Be rid of these things. Be rid of injuring others' good name. Be rid of, of uh, obscene talk, which literally means shameful words. And, and kind of in the combination together, it usually means something where people are using coarse language while defaming another person. You're talking bad about somebody, and you're using dirty words to do it. That's what Paul's getting at here. 
Now, we know that what Paul says is accurate because uh, here, because Jesus tells us in Matthew 15 that the things that come out of a mouth come from the heart. So they, the things that, that exit your mouth, they reflect the inward state of your heart. So if you are raised with Christ, if you are new, these things should not be coming out. If those things are coming out of your mouth, if you are speaking with anger, wrath, malice, if you are slandering and have obscene talk, it's reflecting upon the inner man, who you are. And then he finishes with one more example in verse 9 of the mouth being used as a representative of the old self. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put on, put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So he gives us this last example, do not lie to one another. We don't lie because God uh, is faithful and true, and there's no lie within God, so that doesn't reflect his character. That doesn't say, I'm a new person who's rooted in who God is. It doesn't reflect God's image. So we are truthful as God is truthful. That's why he, he roots that there. Uh, we've, we've put on the new self. We're being renewed in the image of our creator, so Paul uses this, this same word here again where he calls us to, to put off the old self. He's reflecting back on that, that uh, stripping off, that taking off of clothes, you know, that you would change. It's the same word that he used in Colossians 2.15 where he says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He, he's revealed who they are. Uh, it, it, this is the same word that refers to the taking off of our sinful nature in Colossians 2 verse 11 that we looked at um, just a couple weeks back. It says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hand, hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So you took off this sinful flesh. It was, it was cut away through Christ's work upon the cross, Paul tells us. But I think one of the best uh, ways for us to understand what it means here to put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed, is found in Zechariah 3. Flip over there uh, for me, uh, with me. Zechariah 3, we'll read this together and then uh, we'll wrap up. In Zechariah 3, Uh, he receives a vision from the Lord. And uh, it's a vision concerning Joshua, who is the high priest, and he's standing here uh, within the temple. He's standing before the Lord. And uh, the, the picture that's being painted is that the high priest, is he is the, the representative of all of Israel. He is the person, he is the person who is supposed to be the, the cleanest, most pure person of all of Israel. He would be the one who would go in and make sacrifices to the Lord for all sins, for the sins of the nation, for the sins uh, of people who would come to him, and, and he would deal with this. This was his job. His job was just to be uh, perfectly clean, perfectly spotless all the time. 
It says in Joshua or Zechariah 3, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So there's uh, Satan here trying to bring accusations against this person who's supposed to be clean. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. He's wearing his priestly garments. He's supposed to be the best person that we've got, the highest representative before all of Israel. He is wearing what is supposed to be and is white. It's pure. It's a pure linen so that he, he wouldn't sweat in it and wouldn't just be, it wouldn't be work. But he's seen as being wearing filthy garments. He, he's unclean. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by and the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua. Right? So he gets the clean garments and assurance. Security. He's not wondering. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and still ha- and have charge of my courts, and I give, will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Verse 8, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch, who is Jesus, For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. The priest would have to go in and make sacrifices year after year. And what the Lord's telling Joshua here is, I'm going to replace what you think is clean with something that can only be bought by Jesus. New clothes, new vestments that are pure and placed upon you, and I'm going to take care of the sin problem because you can't take care of it yourself. See, the high priestly uh, work was built around the fact that sin had to be atoned for. It couldn't be, it it had to be uh, punished, right? It it couldn't be, God couldn't be indifferent about it. He couldn't be like, oh, whatever. Whatever. And so the high priest would go and make sacrifices and, and, and um, would atone for the sins of the people. But here, the Lord says, I'm going to send my own son because your sacrifices are insufficient. They will not last and you will be doing them forever. But now, there is no more sacrifices because Jesus has paid the one final sacrifice that has satisfied uh, the wrath of God. For those who place their trust in Jesus, he, the Lord, sees them clothed in pure vestments. So we're to take off these old vestments, these old clothes, this old self, and put on the new. To clothe ourselves with this new identity. Not our old identity, who we are, but we're putting on Christ, is what uh, what we're told. Paul tells the Galatians in Galatians 3, for as many of you 
of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So being baptized into Christ, placing your trust in Christ, equals taking off yourself, your old self, and putting on Jesus. So that way when God looks upon you, he sees Jesus in your place. Because you, he paid a debt that you could not pay. He satisfied a, a debt that could not be satisfied by you no matter how long it took. You would never satisfy it. Romans 13 verse, four, uh, thir- 13, verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Paul speaks to that being clothed with Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on Jesus Put off the flesh. And because we're, we don't have glorified bodies, we must deal with our sinful flesh. He goes on to tell us, uh, Paul tells us in verse 10, uh, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So because we're, we don't have these glorified bodies yet, you know, we're not perfect, we have to deal with our sinful flesh. And we're in the process of sanctification. But we're still influenced by the old self. That's why we have to fight. Fight against, put off the sinful flesh. So Paul says that this new self, we're in a state of becoming, right? It's, it's who you are already. Your, your status of who you are, it, it changes your behavior, right? You're not perfect in it, but it changes the way that you act, the way, the things that you do. You know, when, uh, 10 years ago, when I was at my wedding and standing with my wife there before the Lord, I, at that moment, I became a husband. But like, I'm not just done. I'm like, oh yeah, that was sweet. Done. I'm still like in the process. I'm still moving forward. I'm learning what it means to, to become a husband and to, you know, I'm still moving along in that process. I'm changing and growing and learning and transforming and seeing how I ought to be uh, uh, more faithful, more loving, more caring. What, as the Lord grows me, I'm learning what it looks like to love and serve as he loves and serves. That's why we're told, uh, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. So I'm never going to be perfect like Christ, but I can look at how Jesus loves the church and be like, okay, that's what I'm supposed to become. I'm in the process. At some point, I'm never going to get there, like on this earth, but one day I will see Christ face to face and will have a glorified body. And so the goal here is to not, uh, you know, not just receive that state, but it's to know God. It, we, we want to grow in our, and be renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. Now, he ends this section in verse 11 with a really great summary. And, and I, I love what he does here because he levels the playing field for everybody. And that's really what we all want, right? We want God to be just. And, and in order for God to be just, he also uh, has to be loving. And a part of that also, there exists wrath. But here he just levels the playing field again for everybody. You can't save yourself. You can't have your identity in yourself. Not one person is better than another. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All are in need of a Savior. And it's whether you reach out and ask that lifeguard to say, okay, I give up. I'm ready. I've been fighting. I've been treading water out here. Eventually, the riptide is going to get me. I'm going to be exhausted. 
And he says in verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. So Paul tells us that a renewal takes place when we meet Jesus, not just for an individual person, but when Christ died, he created a new people, a new humanity. He t- uh, Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's not talking about any specific race. He's talking about a new people that he has made and brought them together through a bond of Christ's work upon the cross. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So you're a people, a new humanity that's brought together because of what Christ has done for you. It's a bunch of people who recognize that they're all broken, they can't fix themselves, and only Jesus can fix them. And when we recognize that, then we want to worship because it's like, thank you. You just want to say thank you and thank you and thank you because he paid a debt that you could not pay. In verse 10, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. So Jesus' work, it brings about a new humanity, a new people. He gives us a new class of people. And he, he lists, Paul lists some of those people that were in separate classes previously, He says, here there is not Greek and Jew, right? Circumcised and uncircumcised. These are different classes of people. Some are are Jews and some are Gentiles. Some are circumcised and uncircumcised. Then he says, there's barbarians, Scythians, slaves, free. There are people who are are under uh, the bondage of slavery. Some people who are free. Some people who are barbarians. A barbarian is uh, described here as someone who is uh, inarticulate inarticulate or someone uh, who the Greeks would mock. That's where the word came from, barbarian. Um, it, it was used of, of a non-Greek to kind of mock the way that they spoke. They would stammer and have uh, language that you couldn't understand, and it implied that they were inferior. Uh, and then even beyond that, there's the, the description of someone who is a Scythian, and this is a person who uh, lived in a region just north of the Black Sea called Scythia. But this person was described uh, historically as the epitome of unrefinement and savagery. The epitome of unrefinement and sa- savagery. And some people, not knowing how to describe, to describe them, would describe them as more barbarous than the barbarians. I mean, Paul says all these people, Greek and Jew, uncircumcised and circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, gone away. There's a new humanity, a new creation that is brought about through Jesus. But Christ is all and in all. In Galatians 3, 27, Paul writes, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What Paul says here is that he repeats the same thing in Galatians, and he says, when you place your trust in Christ, all earthly identities have gone away. 
Sure, you, you interact and exist in those upon this earth, and you still have your cultural identity that you kind of uh, move in and out of with family and friends and, and things like that. But that's not primarily who you are. That's not your status, your state, who you are. That doesn't change your behavior. Being a part of the family of God changes your behavior. Your earthly identity is no longer important. Unity in Christ, the bond of Jesus, is now the most important. And the people who are in Christ, to them, Christ is all and he is in all. And the reason why they're this new humanity, the reason why there's this unity around these people is because he's the one who indwells all people who put their trust in him. The reason that we gather together without you know, very much common bond outside of this is because of Jesus. It's one of my favorite things about the body of Christ, about those who trust Jesus. He just can be friends with the most random people so quickly because of Jesus. It's like everyone's, you know, you can pick up and it just feels like that's where you left off last time, meeting him for the first time. Not because of where you grew up or what language you speak or you know, what your background is or whether you've done time in jail or not. It doesn't matter. It's the bond of Christ. Recognizing that, like, hey, we're all raising our hands together because we can't save ourselves. I've been humbled enough to realize I need help. And by admitting that I need help, I get more than I ever could have dreamed. A lot of times we spend uh, our lives trying to protect the image of our weakness, and putting forth this facade of strength, struggling. And sometimes, you know, we think that we're strong and we're acting like we're strong. But what Jesus tells us is that when we confess that we're weak and we need help, then he will be strong. And I would rather him be strong way more often than me pretend like I'm weak. I would rather, you know, I got nothing to lose. I would way rather say that I need help and have Jesus show up and have it be awesome every time, you know, then be like, oh, I'm good this time, and have it be like mediocre or lame. I need Jesus' help. We need Jesus' help. So it doesn't really make sense. You know, it's, it's just that pridefulness. We're out in the ocean. We're fending the lifeguard off. I don't need you. I'm good. I don't need you. Just let me tread water out here a little bit longer. And it's not until you're willing to give it up that the strong lifeguard comes in. He saves you, rescues you when you could not rescue yourself. Your muscles are tired. You're getting cramps. Going down quickly. And pretty soon, you're going to have to recognize you can't save yourself. But then it's beautiful when you're saved because you have life. You're a new person. And let me tell you, that changes the way, if once you almost drown, it changes the way you behave after that. When you realize you've been saved, you're like, okay, <laughs> I've learned some lessons, you know, some, some mistakes that I've made in the past, and I need to change some things because I was foolish and prideful and independent. So that's what Paul's wanting to portray this morning. Now, when we look at the text next week, he's going to go on to proclaim the type of uh, virtues that we ought to have. He says, you're a, you're a new people. You're a new 
Uh, you, you have a new self, so don't do these vices, these, these things that are a part of the old self. But now here are some things that you ought to do that characterize who Christ is in you. So if you want to read ahead, you can uh, do that in 12 through 17. We'll look at that next week. So let's um, pray together and we will respond in worship. Lord, we're thankful for Jesus and that you've saved us at the cross. Lord, you've rescued us and you've made yourself available to us. And so, Lord, as we look at your faithfulness in the text this morning, as we look at, Lord, what you've done to rescue us, that we can, that you came, you know, uh, so many years ago, and in a single day we're faithful to the promise that God made to Zechariah to, to remove the iniquity of the land in one day. Lord, what a beautiful thing it is. And so this morning, Lord, we want to come Lord, in humility and say thank you and to remove, uh, to, to, to say thank you that you've removed our filthy garments even though we thought we were clean. To take those things away and give us pure, clean vestments so that we might have new life in you. And I pray, Lord, that you would do that work within us. Lord, we know it's the Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so, Lord, would you work in our hearts and show us if the, if the response that we need today is to confront the fact that we've been trying to, to hide in our own filthy garments, thinking that we're, we're clean, but deceiving ourselves. And so, if that, Lord, is how um, we're operating, how we're working this morning, Lord, I pray that you would, um, by your Holy Spirit, bring conviction and, and um, spur us, Lord, to, to share that with um, our, our friend or our neighbor or um, whoever it is so that we might find new life in Jesus, that we might put on clean, pure vestments, or we're so thankful for what you've done, and we want to celebrate that now as we sing uh, and worship you. Lord, we know that apart from you, we can do nothing, and so we want to sing and celebrate that you have defeated Satan, you've defeated sin, you've defeated death. We want to respond and worship together. Lord, you did something that we could not do, we could never do, we couldn't even attempt to do it. And so, Lord, set our mind's attention and our heart's affection upon you. We want to sing um, and, and respond in worship together because of Jesus' faithfulness. We love you. Amen.